0: Hi, I'm Dr. Gil Wilshire. I'm a board-certified physician, surgeon, and reproductive endocrinologist. Welcome to my series of podcasts where we discuss medical matters that matter to you. I'll be interviewing top experts in their fields, and we'll also be delving into fascinating backstories from deep within the world of medicine. Welcome to the Dr. Gill Show. This is the show where we talk about medical matters that matter to you. (laughs) Our guest today is Dr. Johnny Adams. Welcome to the show, Johnny. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here, Gill. I've been really looking forward to uh, having you on the show. Uh, Dr. Adams is a medical doctor, he's a surgeon, and he is a specialist in vascular surgery. And today we're going to talk about vascular surgery. And all the incredible things that you do?
1: Well, um, you know, I've, I've been so fortunate in my personal and professional life of having great mentorship around me. Uh-huh. And one of the guys that shaped me uh, in my professional career, maybe as much as anybody,
0: was a guy named Walter Peters. Ah, Walter, and, uh, general yes. surgery, colorectal. He's now down in Dallas, I believe. Yes, he's great part guy. Of the
1: Baylor healthcare system in, in ah, Texas.
0: You went the other way. Huge system. Yeah, and so
1: Walter got an MBA probably he was the president of our group Columbia Surgical Associates uh, when I when I shortly after I got here and remained the president until leaving I think in 2016 is he maybe he left in 16 or 17 about then and so uh, he had he had gotten an MBA and he said hey you should think about this because there's just so much about the business of healthcare and the business of our group that you don't know what you don't know, right? Until you know, and, and you he know. was absolutely right. And so I did. I went back to the University of Missouri. I got an MBA, uh, 15 to 17, yeah. and uh, it was just such an eye-opening experience. And it was it was another. A bit of knowledge, you know, a, a fund of knowledge to to try to master and and so forth. Not that you would ever master that, but it was certainly something that that I had not delved into before, and and uh, really was exciting, and it continues to be. I'm yeah. Was uh, after Paul Humphrey retired, then I became the president of our group in 2018, and have been the president since then. So yeah. um, so yeah. it's something that that I think is. Uh, It's almost a necessity in today's healthcare environment, if you're going to lead a group
0: or be part of a big system, et cetera. Right, that makes a lot of sense. So those are skills that you're really using now, really using now. Let's finally get to vascular surgery. And just for my my general audience, vascular means vessels. And vessels come in different types. There's the arteries that come out of the heart, high pressure, thick-walled. They have their own issues, and that's what feeds our body. Then you have the veins that come back. This is a low-pressure system. All the pressure is used to push the blood through our organs and our tissues, and then it kind of trickles back in the veins. They're thin um, and have their own issues. And then there's lymphatic vessels that also kind of, these little wispy vessels that kind of come back with the veins, and we may talk about them a little bit. But the blood vessels are clearly crucial for life, and there's a lot of things that they can go wrong with them. Now, there's a lot of things you do, and I was, think, figure, I was thinking, how am I going to address this? And I found a simple way to address this, Johnny. We're going to start at the feet, and we're going to work <laughs> our way up through the body. Okay? Okay. Now, I, I, as a busy surgeon like you, I have these compression hose on my feet here, because my feet are starting to swell at the end of the day as I get older. What's going on with that?
1: Well, you have a very common condition. And in fact, uh, more than 50% of people over the age of 50 and roughly 70% of people over the age of 70 have a condition called venous insufficiency. Ah. And so that's what's going on. And, and, and basically what is happening is, just as you alluded to, those low-pressure veins the low pressure system in the body, when we stand erect all day, we're putting an incredible amount of pressure on those veins, and the blood tends to pool in our lower extremities. Mm. From, a, from a teleological standpoint, our lower extremity venous system was not made for us to be upright as much as we're upright. Gotcha. And so we have these little bitty valves in the veins that we depend uh, upon a great deal, To push the blood or propel the blood toward the heart, and over years and years of that pressure, they tend to wear out. Uh. And so, when you get into your fifties and sixties and seventies, it's not uncommon for us to see those valves wearing out, and the blood pooling, and that causes the swelling. It causes the fluid in the tissues, and that's why at the end of the day your feet swell Mm -hmm. when you go to bed at night and you resume a recumbent position then when you wake up the next morning most of the time all of your swelling is gone now your compression hose actually are like an exoskeleton compressing Uh the tissues and they and they tend to keep blood from pooling they tend to keep fluid from accumulating in your tissues and so we do prescribe an awful lot of compression hose and actually I wear compression hose uh, having turned 60 recently um, I'm actually 61 and so uh, I wear those uh, hopefully to head off any issues that
0: I might have with the venous system but you're talking about the venous system the venous system so if we're getting a little older we've got some swelling compression hose is a very practical thing that almost anybody can do as long as it's not cutting off circulation why not right and and i found the good ones cost more <laughs> you yeah, get what yeah, you pay for exactly that's exactly with right. compression hustle they
1: come in a lot of different levels and so we do prescribe different levels for most people a level
0: one or two is very sufficient gotcha these are actually rated in millibars there's like 20 to 30 i don't know what the unit yeah, is but it's actually so, there's a rating on these that's exactly
1: right so up to up to 15 to 20 uh, millimeters of mercury That's what it is. Uh, is, is a 1, compression level 1, and then That's 15 true. to 20, 15 to 25 is ah. usually a 2, and then above 30 or so is usually what we would rate as a 3. Now, the 3s are for people with severe problems. They're, mm. they're And when I say severe problems, I mean uh, chronic swelling of the limb, skin changes associated with that, hemosiderosis, which well, is a what darkening. Is that?
0: What is that? To darkening?
1: To darkening of the skin. And in fact, what happens is, as you accumulate fluid in your tissues, you're going to accumulate some red blood cells in there as well. And remember that the heme molecule has iron in it. And so when you break down the iron molecule, it's a brownish discoloration. And that's called chemosiderosis. This is a brownish staining of the skins. And the other thing that happens uh, with this whole process is that in the subcutaneous tissues, you get this inflammatory process that, that takes place. And if you palpate the tissues of the leg of someone who's, who's having this accumulation of fluid and scarring process, it will feel very abnormal to you. It's not the nice, soft tissues that you're used to feeling. A, firm, um, a
0: firmness, or something? very
1: firm. Uh, sometimes associated with a, a even a redness in the acute phases, uh, uh-huh. and then uh, as we've said, this brownish discoloration. So some people uh, describe that as um, almost the feeling of of a hide,
0: um, uh, uh, like a leathery, like a leathery, a leathery feeling. Yes. So if somebody notices that, that might be something to go to you about now there are other things in life that'll make this even worse. And sometimes the veins will start swelling and you'll start seeing those little snakes and ropes and worms, those purple worms under the skin. Yes, varicose Varicose veins. Varicose veins. Now, uh, having delivered a a number of babies uh, in in my training, I saw that pregnancy clearly increases the risk of these veins developing and, and swelling up. Absolutely, and,
1: and you know better than I do that uh, a lot of changes during pregnancy can lead to this, and in fact, often do lead to this, and those changes we're talking about are the increase in the intravascular volume, the increase of volume, uh, and the pressure of the lower extremity venous system by the uterus pressing on the venous return which
0: is on the brim exactly the the, the groin here and compresses these veins they back up and they get swollen so when should and it's mainly women but men can have this too i assume absolutely And,
1: and the reason women during pregnancy are so predisposed to this is by the increase in estrogens and progesterones during pregnancy which is a Which exerts a deleterious effect on the lower extremity venous system
0: in and of itself. Gotcha. So
1: let's
2: say, I guess, usually a woman,
0: but could he be anybody, is starting to notice these these veins, these purple curly veins coming up. When should this person go to a, a vascular doctor such as you for evaluation? Well, the one I think the one thing
1: that uh, that I would tell all pregnant individuals is during pregnancy, it's probably a great idea to wear compression stockings, okay. and the higher the better. Now, a lot of people uh, prefer the knee high; they come in knee high, thigh high, and even pantyhose varieties. Uh, um, but really, the pantyhose. Are the best it goes all if the way you, up and you don't have a the, line yes. you don't have a, a constricting top and they don't fall down and they're easier uh. to wear and they do a better job of compressing the entire venous system uh up through the groin area and so if you can tolerate that that's best as far as um developing varicose veins in pregnancy there is a familial component to that and um and usually mom or aunts, have had a similar problem during pregnancy um and and so that's important that 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 certainly may mean that you're more predisposed to that the development of varicose veins than other women who have not had mom or aunts that have developed this okay. and so as far as coming to see a vascular specialist about your varicose veins i i think first and foremost i would tell people who are interested in having more children that Number one, after pregnancy, after your estrogen and your progesterone levels subside and after you get rid of that excess fluid, and of course, obviously you don't have the fetus pressure on your venous system, a lot of those varicose veins will actually recede. Really? Yes. And so so you want to give it a little bit of time for them to recede. Uh, And if you're interested in having more children, then certainly unless there's a complication of a varicose vein. Like a thrombus.
0: What's a what is a thrombus in plain English?
1: It's it's where you develop a little blood clot within a varicose vein. Now, can
0: a patient feel that? Will it get hard? Will go from soft to hard?
1: Actually, yes. Um, And that's called superficial thrombophlebitis when the blood clots occur in the superficial venous system. Now. That's to be distinguished from a blood clot that occurs in the deep venous system, Uh, like the femoral vein or the popliteal vein or one of the tibial veins. These
0: are the veins kind of behind the knee, deep, deep that you can't necessarily feel. Yes, that is correct. And in fact, the deep
1: venous system carries 90% of the blood from your tissues of the lower limbs back up to your heart. So they're extremely important, and when you develop a blood clot in a deep vein, it's usually associated with swelling of the leg, unilateral swelling' so on one fact, side on one side, sometimes pain that's plus minus, not always, uh, but swelling is kind of the hallmark. and a venous ultrasound or a venous duplex examination is the test that we use to diagnose that. The reason it's so important to diagnose that. And to treat that is because deep venous thrombosis or DVT as it's known okay. can embolize or move.
0: And these uh, these the, kill a lot of people.
1: The blood clot can break off and go to the heart of the lung. And and it and it really is something that's that's uh, an urgent type situation that really needs to be treated. Gotcha. So yes. So but the superficial thrombophlebitis is where you have the same situation, but it's in a superficial vein for all practical purposes, they don't
0: break off, they don't go anywhere. Now, can they? Yes, anything is possible, they can. So it's more of a, a cosmetic issue. So let's say a woman in this case has these these veins developing, usually on the inside of the knee and in the inside of the thigh, as long as they're not hurting and they're soft and you can live with it, you don't have to do anything, is, is what you're telling me. That's correct, you don't have
1: to do anything. Um, after After you're finished having children, and again, we're talking about someone who has not had any complications, then uh, certainly um, a vascular specialist, a vein specialist is a person who you would want to see. Uh, and, and they're probably going to want to do an ultrasound to see the extent of your venous abnormalities. And then based upon that, uh, discuss treatment options.
0: With now, is you. this something you treat? Sure. Absolutely. Sure. So lot. it's my understanding that the, The big vein, the culprit is usually called the saphenous vein. Is that right? That is correct. And I believe you can go in the saphenous vein and block it. You can go in there, do some endovascular magic, and block that vein so it stops backing up and that vein shrinks down is that yes, correct
1: that is exactly correct you've That's done cool. your homework very well gail I, I do
0: a little bit <laughs> i've done a little bit of, of reading before i interview you um, you know way more than you're letting on um, I, <laughs> but you're exactly right you're so exactly how, right. how do you go in there and block that vein i've heard of lasers and, and radio frequency and, yes. and sclerosing foams and whatnot and yes what, what, how do you do that
1: actually you can do that with any of the modalities you just mentioned. The most common modality is uh, using a laser to actually block off the great or the small saphenous vein in the in the setting of that vein uh, not working correctly. So, so we have a vein, the valves are not working correctly, we have what we call reflux, which is where rather than the vein, rather than the valves propelling the blood toward the heart the valves are not doing their job and the blood is falling back down into the lower limb and it's pooling there as we talked about earlier and so in that circumstance we want to reroute blood through veins that are functioning well oh. and so if we have someone that just has let's say an insufficient uh great saphenous vein then we would go in with the laser or with radio frequency and sometimes uh, with foam, and actually block off that vein completely, which would cure the patient of the reflux they're having down that vein and reroute the blood, which the body will do automatically. I was going to ask you,
0: how does it come back? It just finds another route because they're all interconnected. Yes, it actually goes through a different pathway.
1: And I actually might point out that, that that's a pretty recent Development. It's a pretty recent uh, procedure for vascular, uh, and I would also point out that it's been deemed the second most significant improvement in vascular surgery in the last 100 years.
0: Saphenous vein occlusion. Yes, saphenous vein ablation. Ablation. We call it. Yes.
1: So, uh, great saphenous or small saphenous vein ablation. You can also do the same thing to accessory saphenous veins and some of the other longer straighter varicose branches thereof of the great saphenous vein or the small saphenous vein. so
0: you can really there there is hope for people these big veins and you can help them pretty straightforwardly
1: and not only is it a very successful procedure with a five-year success rate of in excess of 95 percent, but but it's a walk-in walk-out procedure and we do uh probably 98% of these without an IV, without any sedation. Uh, well, I take that back. Actually, uh, we do give patients a pill the morning of, like an Ativan, one or two milligram pill to take the edge off. But no IV, no IV sedation, walk in, walk out. And, and literally, they can resume their normal activities within 48, 72 hours. Amazing. Some people are more aggressive than that, actually. So that that's usually our scenario for post-operative
0: care, 48, 72 hours. And if it is a woman, you should do that after you've had your babies. Yeah. Like tummy tucks. Yes. Like people get their tummy yes. tuck and have another baby. Bad, 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 wrong order.
1: Not a great idea. Uh, so, yes, we usually treat their varicose veins after they're finished having children and so forth. Um, but but I, I want to say one other thing, and that is that we're, we're doing this mainly for functional venous problems. Now, we do cosmetic venous problems as well so so what do patient, you mean by functional okay so functional is where you're having swelling or you're having phlebitic pain which is where you have uh legs that are burning stinging aching the longer you stand uh, on them uh or you've had an episode of superficial thrombophlebitis, or you have a little ulceration over a vein or you're having skin changes is starting to
0: break down yes kind of yes a bit. So, so so those are all not function-
1: those are all functional problems that we treat. We also uh, will we'll have patients who come in and say, you know, I really don't have any of those things. I don't have any uh, burning, stinging, aching legs in the evening. I don't have any swelling. I just don't like the way my legs look. That's and okay. I've got this ropey vein on the back of my right calf, and it's about eight inches, and I've had it since I was a cheerleader, and I just don't like it, and I want to get rid of it. Okay? Yeah. You can we, fix we that. Can, we can do that. And so we, we do cosmetic, we do, we call that cosmetic. And so we do a lot of
0: cosmetic work as well. And you can fix it. Sure. Now let's take this same leg. We're get, maybe getting older. Now it's getting pale and cold. And maybe they, this person has smoked a couple cigarettes or has had blood sugar problems in their life and the, the legs starting to get achy and cold and 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 it, it doesn't seem to maybe it's getting a little weaker. Uh, what, what might that indicate? Well, Gil, you're now
1: moving into the arena of the majority of what we do, actually. Right, and, excellent. Good segue. And um, and that is peripheral arterial disease. And it turns out that the arteries in our body, which take the blood flow from our heart out to our tissues and organs, as you previously mentioned, are thicker and are, are prone, way more prone, in fact, maybe prone 100 times more than the veins, to build up of plaque blockages. Blockages, that's exactly right. And uh, so, so these arteries uh, are prone to develop problems with blockages, with aneurysm degeneration or formation, uh, and things like that. And as you also mentioned, uh, the aging process predisposes us to that. Uh, nicotine predisposes us to that. Diabetes, high blood pressure, high blood. cholesterol yeah. levels, lack of a regular exercise program, hereditary uh, components. So there, there are a lot of things that are risk factors for that. And interestingly, in this country, uh, atherosclerosis is almost endemic. And it, it has to do with our diet. It has to do with our genetics. It has to do with our lack of regular exercise. And if you look at young individuals who are uh, in car wrecks, who die in car wrecks and who get autopsies, you will find the early formation of plaque in arteries in individuals who are 17 and 18 years old. So, it so it's early. the beginning of that whole process so, uh, and if you go if if you went to a country like China 30 to 40 50 years ago you would not see that even in individuals who are older and the reason it was because their diet uh, very low in cholesterol
0: they well, exercise. Well, I don't it. want to get too much to cholesterol because I think most of that is bullshit. But I I, I, I <laughs> okay. will leave that. Okay. And I think there's a lot worse risk risk factors for, for vessels. Well, well and
1: everything and, in moderation. There's no question about that.
0: And everything. I'm gonna have whole podcasts on this subject. So I I want to avoid that rabbit okay. hole. Okay, okay. Uh, so, let's just say refined foods, western behaviors okay. have okay. patterns but are my, creating this.
1: My point uh, is that. If you visited China fifty years ago, atherosclerosis was a non entity.
0: Wow. If you visit
1: China now, it's huge. And the it's reason huge. it's huge is because they want to be westernized. They have the western they want diet. to drive a car. They They've want to eat our diet. They want to smoke cigarettes. I mean, gotcha. they want to do all the things that we do, and hence the. So it's something in there. Yeah, right. so
0: we, we can argue in about it. Okay. But, the, but, okay. but we can say the the the, 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 uh, the bird's eye view here. Yeah. It, 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 it's it's the whole the whole thing is creating these vascular diseases and blockages. So a person is getting a blockage. Yes. Right? Legs like getting cold. What what can you do to help this person?
1: Well, when someone develops a blockage.
0: Usually sometimes it's slow too. I mean it's it's a partial block. It's not all of a sudden. It's it's almost
1: always slow. Okay. Now you can't there are some acute uh syndromes where you have acute blockage of a blood vessel resulting in an acute problem with the end organ, the the limb, etc. But but mainly we're talking about a chronic slow process. And one of the first manifestations that as a as an individual you would experience would be Intolerance to exercise, and is weak or they cramp. How yes, you, yes. It so cramps. this almost always occurs in the lower extremities okay. as opposed to the upper extremities. I'm glad we reasons. started
0: in the lower extremities. Yeah. yeah.
1: So the, so and in, as a matter of fact, the femoral artery is the most commonly involved. The superficial femoral artery down just above the knee at ah. what we call the adductor hiatus, which is a, an anatomic. Uh, differentiation between the superficial femoral artery and the popliteal artery. And there's something about that area, uh, and and, and this is debatable, and we're not going to get into that, but there's something about that area that causes plaque formation, and so that's the most frequent area involved. And when that's involved and you decrease the blood flow significantly, you're decreasing the blood flow to the calf. And so frequently the first manifestation is that Someone who could go out and get their mail at their mailbox, say 500 feet from their house, is no longer able to get back to the house in one trip.
0: It's usually have, one side? kind of a hint that maybe it's one side? Yes. Uh, yes, for reasons that are unclear, it's usually right, right, one side. It's not going to be equal on both legs every time. It's, yeah.
1: It can be, but it's not right, right, typically. Right, right, right. And so they come in and they say, hey, I'm having a cramp in my leg. When I walk, when I stop and rest, it goes away, and then I'm able to walk again for another, oh. say, three to 500 feet. And so that's kind of the first tip-off. Now, you said um, a, a, a cool foot or leg. And yes, that does happen, but it's usually as things progress, progress, progress that you get. You go from what I just described as claudication Quatication being exercise-induced cramping of the musculature to rest pain.
0: Uh, And rest pain is is
1: when you go to bed at night, you elevate your leg, you don't have gravity help you with the blood flow down to your feet, and now all of a sudden you start getting pain in the leg or the foot Uh, because you don't have that gravity to help, and that's uh, called rest pain. And basically what happens is your tissues cannot get enough blood to satisfy their their basic metabolic demands. And that's right. a bad, that's a bad. In yeah. fact, we differentiate uh, to a, a large degree claudication from rest pain. Claudication carries a less than 1% risk of limb loss per
0: year. Rest pain, on the other
1: hand, is, is about 25%. So this is year.
0: high stakes. You could lose a limb. Yes. So someone comes to you, now they've got rest pain yes. on it. And you do whatever studies you do you find that there's some blockage in there now what can you do about that blockage can you can you open it up or what, what can you do before,
1: before i before i before i address that and and, and go to what i would consider to be uh the exciting part of this let me let me tell you some boring stuff and the boring stuff is that when we see patients with claudication and we see a, a ton of those patients uh on a weekly basis it's a conservative management program, and what I mean by that is we try to correct as many risk factors as we can.
0: Right. Now, quit so, smoking, lose weight, yes, increase your activity things, a little bit. Would, okay.
1: And our success rate with that is abysmal. I'm right, just going right. to tell you, it's, so it's I want terrible. Because you take a patient who is in a certain culture, lifestyle, grown up for the last 50 years doing uh, things the way they want to do them, and now you tell them that, hey all this stuff that you've been accustomed to doing, we want you to radically change right. it. All their friends do it. Yeah. Their it's coworkers not happen. do it. It's it's probably not gonna happen as you say. Not often. Not so often. then when we see people with rest pain, then we know, okay, we gotta do something here. If we don't intervene, then uh, we're gonna lose a toe or a foot or a leg. Yeah. And unfortunately that does happen. And so um, so intervening uh, you can divide into two big groups, open interventions, which is what we've done for years and years in vascular surgery. And what I'm alluding to are cleaning out blockages, bypassing blockages. Um, they're the two most common ways that we have to deal with blockages in a, for an open intervention. Or we can do an endovascular intervention. And an endovascular intervention means that we basically can clear the blockage by stinting um, or by sucking the blockage out. I, and I'm just, I'm using terms that, that, I, huh? that I think your audience would understand. Yeah, uh, We don't technically suck the blockage out. Uh, we, we can use a little roto router and suck out the little particles. So you've got a roto router
0: that, that can open that up potentially. Yes. Do you ever that... use those balloons like they do in the heart to... to push them open. Absolutely. And stent, now a stent is one of these little wire cages all compressed and it springs open. Yes. You can put stents in in, in, a, in a leg? A- absolutely. So the balloon is called angioplasty,
1: a percutaneous okay. transluminal angioplasty. We can do that through a catheter. And it, uh, the catheter is about the size of the end of a ballpoint pen. And basically we introduce a balloon across the blockage. We push the blockage to the side. Uh, and mature blockages that we're talking about have uh, usually very little recoil, so we're pretty successful at doing that. You cracked them it open. turns out, yes, and it turns out that some arteries are really uh, good at uh, percutaneous interventions. And when I say good, I mean the the five year uh, risk of them developing another blockage there or reaccumulating the blockage in the same place is low. And other arteries are just terrible. We just don't do very well uh, using balloons.
0: They're just different.
1: And so um, so another way to help obviate that low success rate is by putting stents in, which are little wire mesh cages, if you will, um, to hold the artery open. And again, that works really well in some arteries and, and doesn't work worth the worth damn in other arteries.
0: And that's where you need an experienced surgeon who knows the difference. Now... Let's say it's getting really blocked, Mm John, or completely blocked, and now blood is finding other ways around. Blood's trying to go out the little arteries, and and they're all damaged and whatnot. Do you do something like like an actual bypass of these blockages?
1: Absolutely. Would you describe uh, that for me, please? Okay, so a bypass is really uh, a, a, a... Plumbing problem. I mean, I hate to I hate to say it oh, like that, it, but it, it really is. So let's say that you have a pipe that's completely blocked off. You need good inflow, and you need good outflow, and then you need a good conduit around that. And so, if you had a pipe in your house that was blocked off, and you couldn't access it, or you knew that accessing it, cleaning it out was really not very good, you wanted to bypass it. You would, put a, you would put a piece of pipe from good inflow around the blockage to good outflow, and you would probably tie it in and do it all with a, with a really good conduit, another pipe of the same size or even a little bigger, and that's exactly what we do in vascular surgery. Uh-huh. The conduit that we love to use is the patient's vein, the patient's low extremity saphenous vein a a nice saphenous vein without any blood clots in it of sufficient size is the best conduit that we have for bypass so you, none
0: you'd, so you'd cut it out you would move it you'd graft it from one part of the leg get a good piece of saphenous vein and and transplant it yes and transplant that's exactly around. what and we and the do. vein will hold the pressure of the ar- yes, artery yes it will yes ah. it will
1: and in fact the the saphenous vein um, and we're talking about a, a good saphenous vein that's not varicose. It doesn't have any blood clots in it. You haven't been in there with lasers size. and exactly. radio frequencies. Exactly. Right, right. And, and, in fact, that that's a question a lot of people ask me. A lot of young people with varicose veins say, well, my saphenous vein, what, what if I were to need it like Uncle Joe did at the age ah, of 60? Ah, and I, I say, well, well, your saphenous vein is not of good quality. That's the reason that we're going to laser it, and it wouldn't be of good quality to use for a bypass anyway. Anyway, okay. So, so but yes, we use the saphenous vein for the bypass. The, um, the thought that people had many, many, many years ago that, well, it's thin-walled, it, it's going to be uh, subjected to pressures much higher than it's used to seeing, is it going to become larger dilated aneurysmal? Okay. The answer to that is no, it, it usually does not, it almost, almost always, it almost never does. Now, if you have one that's been in place for 20 or 25 years, I've certainly seen aneurysms develop in those. But, uh, but we're, unfortunately, when patients come to us with major blockages, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you that their five-year survival from their heart problems uh-huh. and their lung problems and their kidney problems and all the other things that are usually going on with them means that the five-year survival is about 50 to 60%. And that's pretty harsh to say, and I'm going to say something that's pretty harsh, which is we're not looking for a
0: solution for 20 years. We're looking for a solution for 5 to 10 years. Because whatever is affecting this blood vessel is probably affecting blood vessels elsewhere. Yes. At the vital yeah. organs. And I know you had Dr. Fernandez on recently. Yes. Uh,
1: and I'm sure that he alluded to that uh, because it is a very... Uh, a common problem where atherosclerosis not only affects blood vessels in the periphery, but it also affects those heart blood vessels centrally that are so, so important blood vessels in our brain that subject Uh, us to stroke, et cetera.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, if you don't have a saphenous vein, do you have any synthetic tubes and and conduits that you can use? And what are they called? Well, we do. We do. Uh,
1: If, if we didn't have a good saphenous vein, uh, the next best thing, and this is, this is again, debatable. I mean, everything in vascular surgery, I think, is debatable. The only thing that isn't debatable is is a guy named DeBakey. And,
0: and death and taxes. It,
1: yeah. If, right. if you say, uh, what's the name of that instrument for vascular surgery, chances are you're going to be right if you just say DeBakey. It's a DeBakey. DeBake. Debake. Okay, it's some kind of debake. In
0: gynecology, it's a SIMS. Everything's a yeah, SIMS. Yeah, yeah, there yeah, you yeah, go.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so the next best thing is either – Cryo vein, which is vein that's been taken out of a human cadaver ah, and prepared in a special way. They have these way. things.
0: Yes. You can have cadaveric
1: vein. I didn't yes. know that. Yes. And we typically use cadaveric vein uh, when we're dealing with infection. And, uh, it's not a
0: foreign body. It's not.
1: That's exactly I right. Love it. That's love exactly it. right. And so it does tend to do maybe a little bit better uh, in... Tissues that harbor infection versus those that don't harbor infection. The other thing that we use a whole lot of is synthetic uh, vein, if you will, or a very fancy Teflon called PTFE, which stands wow. for polytetrafluoroethylene. And PTFE is something we've been using for uh, over 40 years now, uh, probably almost 50 years. And PTFE uh, basically is a synthetic mesh. That we use as a conduit for the blood.
0: Is that what they make nonstick pans out of? Uh, Teflon. It's a fancy, Teflon, it's a fancy polymer. Polymer. Teflon polymer. Yes, it is. So you can you can get it synthetic too. So if they don't have a saphenous vein, you can put these these two. You can bypass blockages. Yes. All around the body. Yes.
1: And and uh, one of the more innovative things that have been done with PTFE recently is that there's an inner there's there's a graft you can get that has an inner lining of heparin which is a very potent anticoagulant to keep the blood from sticking to the walls of the PTFE and hopefully keeping it open longer. So obviously it's not as good as saphenous vein. Saphenous vein is, is by far the best if you have a great saphenous vein, but if you don't, uh, then a lot of people use either cryo or, or uh, PTFE. And and I have to be honest with you, PTFE is one of those off-the-shelf things that is pretty easy to use. So. So it's a it's a it's a wonderful alternative if you don't have a good saphenous vein.
0: Yeah, so in summary there's these these areas that tend to block. Yeah. And these areas that you frequently will bypass. And when I tease the vascular surgeons, say we've got femoral and popliteal and iliac and I and they're there would they add they uh, uh Shorten it as fem and pop. So I I say, hey, you're doing a pop, pop, fem, pop, pop, or a pop, fem, fem, pop today.
1: I've only heard you say that about 50 times. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it.
0: That shorthand that vascular surgeons use to. So you're doing that quite frequently, and you're helping a lot of people. Now, the artery's closed off. limb is starting to get infected, turns black and green. Sometimes you have to amputate a limb, don't you?
1: We do, we do. Unfortunately, yeah. uh, we have patients who come in and uh, they have a limb that's that's beyond salvage, um, or an infection that means the limb is beyond salvage. Uh, and, and so, yeah, yeah, there are times we have to do that. Or there, there, you know, there are also uh, those patients who. You know, I've had patients in my practice and and, uh, now children of patients in my practice and actually even some
0: grandchildren. (laughs) Oh, well, we're getting old, And
1: and so, you know, there is a genetic component, et cetera. And so um, there are patients who, who, uh, you know, we've been working on for a lot of years and we kind of come to the
0: end of the line of what we're able to do. And people don't. I, I didn't realize until I was in medical school that yeah. vascular surgeons do a lot of the amputations. It's a it's a part of your job that people might not realize.
1: We do, we do, and and actually, um, we do that because of the relationship that we have with the patient. Now, this is one of the things that really drew me to vascular surgery, and that is, we do the operation we then follow the patient from then on. And the reason we do that is because we know that if we do certain surveillance uh, with, with appointments, uh, evaluations in the form of examinations and non-invasive vascular testing, that we can pick up problems of the operation that we have done before they would lead to a major problem or uh, even an amputation. And so, so not infrequently we'll do an operation on a patient and for the next 20 years, we'll follow that patient. Wow. Um, we're, we're limited sometimes obviously by, uh, the patient's longevity, but, but we do follow patients from that point onward. So we have a relationship with them. And yes. if we reach a point where, uh, they're going to lose a toe or a foot or a limb, then, um, you know, we, we frequently do that because of the relationship and the, the trust they have in us and, and obviously the,
0: the trust we have in them. Yeah, and that's why the training in general surgery is so important. You have to be a surgeon first, vascular specialist with, within that field. So working our way up the body, John, there's this big blood vessel that comes off the heart called the aorta and comes up and feeds the upper body and goes down, feeds the kidneys and the bowels. and that artery can sometimes swell and create because, because it becomes something called an aneurysm. And we both graduated from medical school the same year and we both have seen amazing advances. In our respective fields just amazes we're we're in a different world nowadays what we can do now versus what we had to do and I know when one of these aneurysms gets real big and starts to explode it's called a triple-a an abdominal aortic aneurysm and I will never forget when I was a medical student having somebody with these purple bruises on the belly and a backache and an x-ray and and the, the surgeon said this is a rupturing aneurysm i remember being the assistant used to open the belly all the way if it was bursting the blood would be just just pouring out i remember them putting the clamp on the aorta and i would hold the clamp and i'm feeling it pulsating as they would cut out this swollen aorta and put in a graft one of these these artificial fiber grafts and a lot of people would die and it was a very bloody procedure and, and it was risky and it was a a lot of drama and whatnot, but I understand that uh, you now can do something much more elegant for something that's life-threatening and enormous, such as a AAA. So, would you tell us what can you do about these aortic aneurysms that we could not do when we were when we were medical students?
1: <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, um, abdominal aortic aneurysms are one of the more common aneurysms that we see in our patient population in their sixth, seventh, and eighth decades of life. And these aneurysms develop, we used to think that they developed from a, and they do, from a degenerative process, but we kind of had it wrong. It turns out that these aneurysms are familial in some cases, related to nicotine in a lot of cases, um, and related to some different enzyme deficiencies if you will in the wall of the artery
0: so it runs in families and there's a metabolic component yes so you you definitely have a, a a tendency or propensity to to make one of these exactly interesting and
1: in fact if you did a an abdominal aortic ultrasound of everyone's abdominal aorta over the age of say 65 to 70 You'd probably find an aneurysm in 2%, 3% of people. A significant
0: if, one, like a life-threatening one, like it could go. No,
1: no, no. You would find just an aneurysm. And an aneurysm okay. is defined as 1.5 times the normal diameter of an artery. So okay. the abdominal aorta is typically in a man somewhere around 16 to 20 millimeters in diameter. Okay. And so you'd find an aneurysm of 30 millimeters or higher in, in, in that percentage of patients. And you would find a significant aneurysm if you if you if you coned it down to where you're just screening people who smoke, then you would find more significant aneurysms than if you just screen the population at large.
0: And But, but but but
1: but what I'm getting to is it's not an insignificant finding. Now, we don't fix these aneurysms until they get large enough to burst. And what size is that? Well, it's about 55 millimeters. Wow. And so we watch an awful lot of them from, say, 30 to 35 all the way up to 55. And then we start repairing them at 55 because we know that's the size that the risk of the operation is less than the risk of rupture. It's About 55
0: millimeters so are for most am- people. Gotcha. So what are these amazing things you can do now so you can avoid these enormous, bloody, risky operations.
1: One, In fact, it's been deemed the most significant advance in vascular surgery in the last 100 years, the endovascular repair of an abdominal aortic aneurysm. And the thing that basically is, uh, is done is that you go through the groin arteries or the femoral arteries down in the groin area, and under x-ray, you're able to put covered stents Inside the aneurysm. So you're not opening the belly at all. Right. First of
0: all. A lot of these cases, you're threading a tube in through the groin, and through that tube, you have a device that goes in and expands and essentially relines the aorta. Is that what's yes. happening? Yes,
1: it, it redirects the blood flow from the walls of the aneurysm. So it takes the pressure of the blood. Off of the wall of the aneurysm, and now exerts the pressure inside the covered stent, so that you don't get that pressure, that that bursting pressure, if you will, of, yeah. the, of the aneurysm wall. And if you don't have that bursting pressure, then typically the aneurysm sac will shrivel down around the stent. The new inner and it's tube. amazing. It's amazing. It. So we started it. doing those uh, in 1999 at Boone Hospital. Uh, a retired uh, partner of mine now named Kurt Vogel. Paul Humphrey and myself. And uh, in nineteen ninety nine we started doing these things. And believe it or not, I still have a couple of patients from nineteen ninety nine who we follow once a year, do an ultrasound just to make sure that the endograft, as we call it, the covered stents looks good and that we don't have any problems associated with that. And there's still it is amazing. And, and let me just say this: Please. And when you and I were in training, those patients you're talking about would be in the hospital anywhere from minimum of a week, all the way out to two, three weeks. Yeah, a long And that's time. if things went pretty darn good. Yeah,
0: without a major complication. Yes. Yeah.
1: And, and the risk profile was 15 to 20 percent for heart attack, stroke, kidney failure. I mean, all kind of. If you name it, it could happen with a with an aneurysm. Nowadays, with our endovascular repairs. The risk profile is somewhere around three to four percent all for everything, wow. and the major risks are about one percent or less. And almost everybody goes home the next day. That's it fantastic. is absolutely amazing. Wow! Uh, and I'm still I'm still what what is this? This is uh, twenty four year twenty four years later almost twenty three right. years later. I'm still amazed at that that we that we can do that it, it just
0: revolutionized the yeah. treatment of aneurysm it really yeah did. yeah yeah now what if it's if an aneurysm is bursting can you still do that
1: you can and there are a number of studies to show that if you treat a ruptured aneurysm with endovascular techniques if you if you can we can't treat all of them with endovascular techniques i would say 80 to 90 percent we can there are still some that we cannot but if you can treat it with an endovascular technique the chance of survival is much better than if you have to go in and do an open repair, like you alluded to earlier. Wow. So
0: here's a personal question: When was the last time you did an open aorta?
1: Well, uh, open we still we still aorta. do elective open aortas. The last time I did an elective aortic repair was probably within the last month.
0: Last month, so it's yeah. you still do? those? We still do those. You're not getting rusty.
1: I don't. I don't. Well, we.
0: Not that am any surgery would ever I getting, admit am that. I, rusty. <laughs> I hope not. Uh, we don't do as many
1: open things as we used to, but we still do a lot of open stuff. Now, I do a lot of uh, exposures for spine surgery. And when yes. we do that, we do move a lot of the big veins and the arteries, namely the abdominal aorta and the inferior vena cave and stuff around. So.
0: Yeah, so, so we thing, still do a
1: lot of open stuff, just not aneurysm
0: repairs. Yeah, so you're not rusty in the least. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that the orthoped, orthopedic surgeons that need to get to the back, and we, we had Doctor Miles here uh, earlier, um, will sometimes need a little assistance because these are big veins, big arteries, and, and they can bleed. They can be so getting exposure of the spine is crucial, and that's where you uh, and your colleagues will, will <laughs> help uh, do that.
1: Absolutely. And it, it turns out that one of the better ways to address the lumbar spine issues that the spine surgeons deal with is from the very front. And to get to the spine from the okay. very front, you have to, at the L5-S1 level, and, and really at all of the lumbar levels, you have to move the aorta off of the uh, lumbar spine and the vena cava off. And so vascular surgeons, by and large, are the ones that do that. Uh, There are other surgeons that do that, but uh, someone very facile with uh, open techniques and and handling blood vessels is the person to do that.
0: So, moving on, let's move our way up the body. Sometimes the blood vessels from the aorta to the kidneys or the bowel will get partially blocked. Yes. I read something about a nutcracker where the... The, the vein for the kidney is in the wrong, and I think my cadaver, as a medical student, had a nutcracker because it screwed up my uh, understanding of anatomy because the vein was in the wrong place in my cadaver. Ethel had a had a, uh, an anomalous uh, blood vessel to her kidney, but just in general, just just kind of briefly, if, if the how would one know or find out that you're getting poor blood flow to your bowels or your kidneys? Well, one of the more frequent situations that we
1: see uh, now now let me let me say from the outset that the blockages we're talking about can occur in any of the peripheral arterial beds that you have so arteries going to your intestine, arteries going to your kidney, arteries going to the lower extremities, arteries going to your pelvic organs, etc they can all harbor these blockages uh, and if you have a significant blockage, let's just say you have a significant blockage to a An artery or within an artery that's going to the kidney and that kidneys not getting enough blood flow then one of the ways that you you might find that out would be through your family physician who says hey your kidney function is off a little bit on our routine testing that we did and we're gonna look into that a little more with probably an ultrasound examination and then on the ultrasound lo and behold a blockage shows up so when I was in training uh, we did all those operations open with a bypass. We very quickly transitioned uh, in the uh, late 1990s to fixing a lot of those blockages with balloon angioplasty with a stent, usually unless it was something rare. But almost always, we would leave a stent behind, and we did that for an awful lot of patients. And the thinking was. Uh, we know that that artery is is intimately involved in the control of blood pressure, and so we can better control blood pressure if we don't have a blockage in the kidney artery, and we can keep those patients from going on to develop renal failure. Yeah. Now there are several studies that were done, controversial, but but certainly a lot of people use those studies, uh, and one was the CORAL study, uh, and the and and I can't remember the name of the other study offhand, but they both came out at the same time. They're about 10 years old now, and they radically changed the face of how we treat blockages in the kidney arteries. And it turns out, and I, I, I do believe this, this is very controversial, but I believe that we were way too aggressive in treating a lot of the kidney huh. lesions. And so uh, we don't treat near the number of kidney or we call them renal artery stenosis (RAS). We don't we don't treat near the number that we used to, because we were probably overtreating a lot. And it turns out that a lot of those can be treated medically, especially mm-hmm. with our new uh, medications to control blood pressure, the so-called ACE inhibitors and the uh, so-called ARBs. It's another big, big class. Right. So, uh, but but we do still treat a lot of blockages that go to the intestines.
0: Yes, tell me about that.
1: That usually is, is presents in patients who are very avid smokers. Uh, they've lost a lot of weight recently and they have abdominal pain after they eat. So going back to that whole discussion we had about claudication, when you exercise the muscle group and it doesn't get enough oxygen delivered to it because of a fixed problem in the artery, you can develop a cramp. Well, the same thing can happen in the intestine. You get a
0: claudication you, of your gut. Yes. Unbelievable. it I, I, makes it's sense.
1: Called, it's actually called postprandial. Ah, after you eat? Yeah, postprandial abdominal pain, postprandial wow. angina. So you diagnose that. So what can you do about that? We can actually, once we define where it is, we can, we almost always use stents to correct that problem. Uh, And and again, a stent is a metal scaffolding that we're going to use to push that blockage to the side to reestablish a good flow channel there.
0: And it's effective and it works.
1: Very, very effective and risk profile very low and way better than some of the other things that we still do sometimes, but rarely, Uh which is where we go in with an open operation and we do a bypass of an intestinal artery or a clean out of an intestinal artery or remove some acute problem like a blood clot in an intestinal artery. And let me also, while we're talking about that, yes. and we're talking and kind of getting back to the blood clot, I meant to say this earlier and I didn't. COVID, uh, as you so probably know, is a, a virus which is very uh, substantially correlated, or I should say maybe maybe strongly correlated with the inducement of blood clots and it's 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 not just bad
0: blood clots
1: yeah and not just lower extremity deep vein blood clots but we we see blood clots in the upper extremities we see blood clots um, in and around the heart and we Uh, see blood clots in and around the intestines and so forth so um,
0: more often after COVID infection yes so since
1: 2019 We have seen just a huge uh, increase in the number of patients that we evaluate for uh, what we think and and, and what we know in some cases, but we think in a lot of cases are COVID-induced hypercoagulable syndromes or or blood clots associated with COVID.
0: A whole whole new world of COVID, long COVID, things you think of it as a pneumonia, but it's much, much more complicated than that. Yes. Wow. So working our way up the body, we've had so much more to cover. Uh, Dr. Adams, I believe something that you deal with frequently are atherosclerosis, are plaques in the carotid arteries? Yes, we do. Going to the brain. Now, why are those called endarterectomies? Why aren't they called carotid atherectomy? So tell me me about the name. Why, why, Why is that? How common is it, and what can you do about it? Okay, so carotid atherosclerosis
1: of the uh, major internal carotid artery is something that's that's been described for a long, long time. And um, and I'm not going to bore you with all the history of it, but I will tell you that um, when we see patients who present with a symptomatic lesion of the carotid artery that has caused a stroke okay, or maybe... Uh, and a stroke is defined as a neurologic deficit that persists beyond 24 hours, or or maybe a mini-stroke or a transient ischemic attack, a TIA, which okay. is less than 24-hour duration of a neurologic problem. When we see that and we have a, a very significant blockage or lesion in the carotid artery, uh, then we know more oftentimes than not that the risks are going to be less if we can go in and clean that that blockage out than if we don't do anything and just treat that patient medically now I, that's it's a huge huge oversimplification there are I have probably four textbooks on my shelf that are just about the carotid artery wow. uh, so so it's it's really one of those things that it's a lifelong learning process and since I've been in vascular surgery this is my 28th year uh, I've seen a dramatic change in the way that we treat patients. For example, asymptomatic carotid lesions, even up to 70%, 75%, we're by and large treating those conservatively with medical management now rather than surgery or stents. Okay. If you're symptomatic, if, you're sympt- if you've had a little mini stroke or a stroke right. and you have a significant blockage, and significant in my mind would be 60, 70, 80 uh, percent, then we're going to either put a stent in that or clean that out. And again, huge oversimplification, but it's it's one of those things that uh, we could we could talk for days about this and yeah, still a, not
0: even scratch the surface. It's a big subject, and it, it seems that that's one of the hot spots. You mentioned there's certain areas of the body that tend to make these plaques. Yes. And it's a hot spot for some reason. It so. is. the The, the, prox- the, the,
1: very start of the carotid the internal carotid artery that goes up to the brain is what's called the carotid bulb and it's a little dilated area of the artery and it's the posterior lateral surface that tends to accumulate plaque and the reason for that is probably because there's normally a reversal of flow there and that reversal of flow exerts a hemodynamic injury to the endothelium a
0: turbulent is rubbing that, it; it's yes, rubbing the it with a turbulent flow,
1: and it allows the migration, the migration of LDL across that injured endothelium, which becomes oxidized and leads to this whole process that we deem atherosclerosis. Atherosclerosis is is really an inflammatory process. I think pretty much mm-hmm. everybody agrees on that, and it's it's due to the oxidation of the LDL, and it tends to happen right there in the carotid bulb. Because of the physical properties of that area and, and because of the, a lot of the hemodynamic properties in the face of hypertension, in the face of uh, high cholesterol levels,
0: nicotine, things like that. Or homocysteine. And I'm going I'm to push back on the cholesterol. Yes. And, yeah, I don't want to get into that. And intimal thickening <laughs> and migration of macrophages. That it might be more, more important than the cholesterol Here. itself. And Anyway, so once again, a huge topic. But what I'm interested in is how do you go in there, John, peel peel out this eggshell crunchy stuff, get it out, and then re- then put it back together. And I just imagine all these crumbly pieces. Once you do it, all of them just you open up the artery and just goes up to the brain and strokes out the brain. How can you do it so cleanly? and effectively that you're not showering the brain with more of these. Well, because because atherosclerosis, people need to realize these plaques are like crunchy eggshells. They come in all different varieties from crunchy eggshells
1: to cottage cheese consistency, et cetera, et cetera. Toothpaste. I've seen toothpaste. So, so almost always when we are working on the carotid artery, we have it clamped so that there's no flow going to the brain through the part we're working on to flush those particles up to the brain. It seems that
0: clamping would, 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 would break Aha. off
1: pieces. Very, Yeah, that's very good. So we yeah. use a shunt. A lot of times we will use a shunt around that area to maintain flow to the brain while we're
0: working on that artery. So You can plug in one side and the other? Yes. And, and, and by yes. temporarily bypass that spot.
1: And... Ah. And there are times where we don't use a shunt because we know that the collateral blood flow in
0: the brain through a system that's called the circle of Willis. The so blood and flow from the other side is enough to keep the brain alive while you're working there. The back and the other side, yes. And we're able to measure certain
1: factors before we clamp. We're able to measure certain pressure points and determine is it adequate or is it not adequate. And if it's not adequate, we're probably going to use a shunt. If it's adequate, then we, we probably do not need to use You've a
0: shunt. You've got time to do your work.
1: Yes. There are surgeons who, uh, if you're going to do this open carotid surgery, they will use a shunt all the time. There are surgeons who will selectively shunt. And then there are surgeons who, I don't ever shunt. I just do it really fast. Real fast. And yeah, they're good
0: yeah, at that. Yeah. They can do that.
1: And those are the open operations. If we're doing a stent, then almost always we will have a protection device to keep the little particles from going to the brain. And that could be an umbrella filter placed up high. And so that, that stay there forever or just during the case? Just during the case. Okay. We take that out at the end of the case. Or we can reverse the blood flow so that the blood flow is not going up to the brain, but it's actually being reversed into a Little protection device. And you're washing out those pieces. Yes. yes, There you go. Because that always
0: bothered me. How could you do that without creating strokes? Clearly, you have methods for doing that fast. So, you do a number of those. That's a fairly common procedure for you, isn't
1: it? It is very common to do a carotid endarterectomy. And an endarterectomy means taking out the inner lining of the artery, ah, okay. the is made up of three different layers. And we take out usually the intima and the media where the plaque resides. Okay. The adventitia is the outermost layer. And fortunately for us, it's the strongest layer. So we can take out the inner two layers without compromising
0: the strength of the artery. Now, how come clots uh, don't form over this rough surface that you've created?
1: Well, we use a blood thinner during surgery to prevent that. And then usually after surgery, we will use a platelet inhibitor like aspirin or like Plavix or like something like that to try to, to try to keep that from happening. But the other answer to your question is we try as best we can to make sure we have a smooth surface and we do not have many irregularities there, many, many, if any. So, so that the. The, the flow is nice and smooth and laminar and is not turbulent in any way.
0: You've got to be, what, no, what's the size of the suture? Now, this is kind of esoteric. Your sutures are getting small when they get down to six, seven, six. Yeah, we use 6O uh, so,
1: and 7O for the carotid. Now, uh, you're now, getting down now,
0: to close to hair, to several times bigger than a human hair at that, at that point. And then you you're know, using very smooth sutures called proline, I believe. Right? Yes. Uh, we use we use a
1: a monofilament proline suture and uh, blood elements stick to that uh, much less so than say a braided suture and that's yeah. why we're using the monofilament. We use uh, what's called loops and loops are glasses that have little telescopes on them.
0: So you're doing this under magnification?
1: Two and a half magnification minimum, yeah. sometimes three and a half, uh, and that helps remarkably. The Sutures really need to be placed in a precise fashion, and that's what you know your your five years of general surgery and your two years of vascular surgery is all about and then right. obviously the the learning that goes on uh, continually
0: once you're out in practice. This is why having an experienced vascular surgeon so important, so important who who's good who's good now. We've talked about a lot of stuff here. Let's just briefly touch on a a couple more things that you do. If a person is having clots in their legs and they want to, and they're maybe maybe have thrown some, I mean, throwing meaning they migrate up to the heart and the lungs, if they're going to be doing this more often, what is this filter you can put in the vena cava that I hear so much about? Well, an inferior
1: vena cava filter uh, looks just like a shuttlecock that you would play badminton with. Ah and um, and a guy named Lazar Greenfield, while he was a medical student at the University of Oklahoma developed this thing.
0: As a student, I love it.
1: Yeah, it, 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 was, uh, it was actually uh, phenomenal that he did this. But, um, so we can go in, let, let's say we have a patient and they are having recurrent blood clots uh, and, and parts of those blood clots are breaking off and going to the heart or to the lungs. Um, and we're, we're not having success treating them with our traditional anticoagulation or blood thinners. Uh, or maybe they can't take blood thinners because they have other problems, such as uh, bleeding coming from the GI tract or the urologic tract or something like that. Um, so if they, if they have a contraindication to a blood thinner or we're just not successful with blood thinners, we can put in one of these shuttlecocks, if you will, or a filter. And, we and it's called that. a
0: Greenfield. It was his name Greenfield Greenfield.
1: His was name his was name? Lazar Greenfield. He okay. was the initial guy. So all the filters initially when I was in training were, were Greenfield filters. Uh, now we have a lot more a variety of filters and so forth. Uh, and, I, and I would say that most of the filters that are probably put in today are not the Greenfield variety. And the reason for that is it has a lot to do. You can remove a Greenfield filter if you if you really have to but we have filters that are way
0: easier to remove Ah. so
1: so nowadays we would go in we would place
0: a filter in the inferior vena cava that's the big for everybody that's the big vein that's draining your whole lower body exactly feeding the heart okay exactly okay so we
1: put the filter there to catch the blood clots and it and these filters are designed so that they will catch blood clots that are deemed significant in size um, and for every filter, that's a little different, but they're, they they catch very small blood clots. And then the blood that goes by that will actually lyse that blood clot over time.
0: So it'll dissolve. So it will dissolve over time. I was wondering time. what happens. Now you've got a big clot, you know, filling up your vena cava, a big chunk of, uh, of, of blockage there. And but you, it does melt.
1: And usually it melts away with time. In fact, uh, that's one of the risks of having a filter, which is you get a big blood clot there. It could block off all the blood flow, and you would develop massive swelling of the legs. Uh, happens about one percent of the time 1%. with the filter, so it's very low. So yeah, we put in green filter. I, I, there I am again. We put in we put in filters, inferior well, right. vena cava filters, um, and I would say these days. Uh, Maybe not the majority of the time, but a significant uh, number of filters, we go back and we remove, and we can do that again under x-ray. So it's, it's wow. again, it's a little uh, ballpoint pen stick, either down in the groin area in the femoral oh. vein or up in the neck in the jugular vein. Ah. And we usually do it with the patient heavily sedated or under a general anesthetic because we want to be extremely precise in where we put it,
0: control oh, the breathing, man. et cetera. I can imagine if that thing... Something breaks off or goes in the wrong direction or you've got a, a piece of metal floating around in there. Oh, my goodness. That's called a very bad day. That's called a very <laughs> bad day. <laughs> so, Johnny, we've talked about a lot of stuff, and I believe we've covered most of the things you do day to day. Let's talk briefly about people on kidney dialysis and they need access to their blood. Okay? The kidneys filter the blood, take out waste products. That can be done with a machine. Now, for a person on dialysis, they're doing this typically twice a week, and they have to have these big IVs put in there three times a week. Oh my goodness! And you need access to their blood over and over and over. And and it, one of the procedures I believe vascular surgeons like you do are things called fistulas, AV or arterial-venous fistulas, where you have a you you've, you've Taken a vessel or a tube and connected a big artery to a vein, usually in the arm, I believe, and that allows them to put, to get blood out and put the the cleaned up blood back in the body, right? Yes,
1: absolutely. So, so tell me
0: about these AV fistulas that you that you create.
1: Well, unfortunately, in this country, we have a lot of patients who develop kidney failure, and the two primary reasons are high blood pressure, hypertension, and diabetes. And so, uh, in that population of patients, there are really three main ways for you to continue on and to receive a therapy that takes the place of your kidneys. And those therapies are just what you were talking about, which are called hemodialysis access options. And okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna come back to that. And then you can also put a catheter in the tummy; it's called peritoneal dialysis. Um, we're not gonna get into that really, but. Uh, And then you can get a kidney transplant. But for most people in this country, they're going to be on a hemodialysis option. And you're right. That's where we connect an artery to a vein or we put in some type of synthetic graft as a substitute for a vein. And what we're doing is we're creating a high-flow circuit from the arterial to the venous system. And that allows... The dialysis units, and we have many, many here in central Missouri, it allows the dialysis units to access that circuit with two needles, one to withdraw blood. It goes through a kidney machine that cleanses the blood, and then it's delivered back to the patient through the other needle. And a typical treatment will take about three hours. They need three treatments per week to do the, the work of the kidneys. It's not a perfect treatment because you're doing the work of, a, of the kidneys over 48 hours you're now cramming that into three hours yeah and so if you'll remember the kidneys take a lot of fluid off of us each day and so we're taking off fluid in three hours that would normally be taken off in 48 hours so so it's tough on patients uh, but we do an awful lot of that we we call those accesses the patient's lifeline uh-huh. And as a matter of fact, if something goes wrong with that lifeline, uh, then that's uh, it's an urgent situation for patients. Now, it's, it's funny you bring that up because as I was coming in here today, one of my partners on call called me. There are literally, she's had three consults today for that exact thing and so put one uh, in or to
0: fix one that's clotted up that needs to be redone
1: three that need to be redone that are clotted and that may mean going in and removing the blood clot uh, with either a a catheter what we call a percutaneous or an open technique Uh, or it may mean modifying the lifeline or it may even mean putting in a new lifeline so uh, and then there are times where we temporize patients we can't get any of those things going in a timely manner so we put a catheter in and through the catheter uh the patient can mm-hmm. receive a dialysis treatment Would while we're put trying that in to a big, a
0: big vein somewhere else maybe yes in the neck a big vein
1: somewhere? in the neck the jugular vein or the subclavian vein typically while we're trying to figure out what our options are where, where are we going to put a new access
0: because it seems those mean. keep you very busy
1: it it, it is it's uh a, it's a, you know the the primary thing well first of all the thing that led me to vascular is the diversity you yeah, just I mean, get to do covered so everything. many different I've, I've and i've just and,
0: done the whole body with you here. and i'm going to be
1: honest with you yeah. there are many things that we're not going to talk about that i just love to do and and so for a typical month i probably would do i'm going to say 50 different operations maybe 75 different, different operations different and it's operations. just so fun to do that yeah. we're not doing the same thing over and over and over Uh, we use a lot of the same techniques. There's no question about that, but, uh, but as far as the operations go and, and trying to fit that to the patient and so forth, that's just such a, such a challenge and such a great feeling.
0: Yeah. Now, can you think of any instances I'm, I'm looking for something, uh, off, off the beaten path. What's the weirdest thing you've ever seen in vascular surgery like somebody like i, I i've heard stories about somebody's had a dead toe and that they've, it's just been dead for weeks and weeks or months and months or well, what's, what's the weirdest thing you've ever seen in in vascular surgery practice well uh, gosh on, a small only world we can change names yeah yeah only
1: about 20 things come to mind immediately but, <laughs> but tell me two
0: or three please
1: when I was a medical student, uh, I was a second year, and, I, and we had a class called Introduction to Clinical Medicine. And that Introduction to Clinical Medicine was all about how to do a history correctly and how to do a physical exam correctly. And so you would get a second or third year medicine resident. And you got to remember, this is at UT Southwestern. So Parkland, the big city hospital in Dallas, uh, just an incredible place. Um, and and a wealth of of teaching opportunities, if you will, in that hospital. And so what we would do is the resident would spend probably five to ten hours with each of us showing us the different aspects of how to elicit a history and how to do an exam. And then he would take us over to the hospital, and he would have picked out a patient, and he wouldn't tell you anything about the patient. You would go in, and you would spend a couple of hours with the patient trying to figure out exactly what's wrong. So you weren't supposed to get in the chart or anything like that. And while you were doing that, the resident would stand in the hallway and he would listen to you. And there would be times he would kind of peek in and so forth. And and the the families and the patients knew that, hey, these were students and they're learning. And and would you consent to this? And, you know, do you have any problem with it? Da, da, da. And almost everybody uh, would, would consent to it because... It, it, was, it was that type of atmosphere where everybody was just really uh, interested in doing anything they could to advance medicine. So, so, so I had this, this resident, and uh, he taught me all the finer points of the history and the physical exam. And so I went over, and I'm interviewing this patient, and uh, I get through the history, and I'm doing the physical exam. And so I pull my stethoscope out, and I do exactly as my resident had taught me to do. I take the stethoscope and i put it on top of the head to listen for any abnormal sounds in this one area over the cranium that you can hear inside the cranium now (laughs) you got to understand that hardly anybody ever does in fact i've never met another person that does this but he felt very strongly about this so i pull my stethoscope out and i Place it on top of this lady's head who was in her 60s and was there for a totally different reason than than anything having to do with her brain. And her daughter is sitting there, and she'd been intently listening to this, this whole thing with the history and was really into this. And she turned to her sister who was next to her, and she said, I'll never forget this. I was so embarrassed. She said, you can tell he's a student. He doesn't even know where the heart is.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and, and even my that. resident <laughs> was laughing
1: a little bit, <laughs> and I was so embarrassed. I didn't That's know great. what to do. So anyway. That's but, great. But, you know, vascular, um, it, it comes with uh, a lot of work and a lot of satisfaction. Uh, and we do have times where it's, it's hard to actually believe exactly what we're seeing and i and and, and i got to tell you one other one if i please i, I want to hear i want to so, hear another story please. okay so uh i got called from the emergency department by one of my orthopedic surgery colleagues and this has been five to seven years ago now and he said hey johnny he said uh, you think you'd come in and, and take a look at this and i said well what's going on and he said well he said i got this young guy here and he said, you just got to see this. You're not going to believe it. He said, <laughs> I, we're going to have to go to surgery tonight. And he said, oh, I really need your help. I said, okay, I'll be right there. I had no idea what was going on. Great friend of mine, great surgeon. And, and if he said, hey, we're going to have to take this patient to surgery, then okay, well, that meant you know right. he needs me and pretty quick. So, so I go in, and by the time I get there, um, he already had the patient in the room. And so in the, operating room? in the operating room. Okay. And this was, I mean, this is like within 15 minutes, 15, 20 minutes. And I'm like, holy cow. Oh. So um, so we're outside the room and he comes out and he says, Hey, he says, uh, this uh, this guy is a carpenter and he's a framer. And he said, I don't know if you know anything about framers. And I said, Well, a little bit. And he said, Well, he goes, You know those those automatic nail, nail guns, guns they use. Uh oh. I go, Yeah. He goes, well, he was resting his nail gun on his leg, and he put a, a nail through his leg. And not just any nail. This is a nail.
0: Big-ass nail. Big
1: nail. And I go, okay, okay. So so they, they put him to sleep. They roll him over into the prone position, so face down. And so then I go in uh, with this orthopedic surgeon, and we're looking at this nail that is in the popliteal fossa, so behind the knee. And there's only about an inch sticking out, and immediately I said, "Is anything coming out the front? Is there anything coming out his patella?" And he goes, "No." He goes, "This nail is coming right to the surface of the patella, but it didn't. As best I can tell, it didn't penetrate the patella." He said, "But I'm worried it's right through the artery or the vein." Ah, uh, yes, that's the I pop. Said, I said, "Okay, okay." So we operate on this guy and made a little two-inch incision. And exposed everything. And this nail, you gotta understand the artery and the vein in that circumstance are intimately together. There's They're just no way, there's no way to get anything between them. And this nail went right between Sweet. them and did not injure either one of them. So oh, we were able to remove lucky guy. We able to remove the nail, did not have to put one suture in anything, closed the soft To obviously cleaned everything up closed the soft tissue, took the fellow to the recovery room. And I'm sitting in the lounge dictating a note when the orthopedic surgeon walks in and he goes, hey, he goes, you're not going to believe this. I said, what else? What else? And he goes, a guy just got up out of recovery room and left. I said, what do you mean? He goes, he just got up and left. He goes, we have his name and everything, but he just, he just left. He He just left against medical advice. He just walked out. I'm like, holy cow. So, anyway, so that was very, never saw the guy again. Hope, I'm sure he did great. I hope he did great.
0: But uh, never heard one more word about him. What a story. <laughs> you know, there's something they say in uh And uh, I hope I don't piss off my friends at the VA. They deal with tough old coots, you know, old, uh, old, uh bristled war veterans. They say, sometimes these guys, you just can't save them. And sometimes, Johnny, you just can't kill them. <laughs> Well, <laughs> you know, tough as that so that guy was tough as nails tough he, as nails took sir. the claw hammer pulled it out and he walked out on well you. not exactly a claw hammer, didn't call did it, it out. didn't we call didn't write
1: did yeah, we did pull it out
0: well johnny anyway. well thank you so much for the stories thank you for a very insightful delightful conversation i learned a lot and i hope our listeners will also learn a lot from your expertise and know when now to go see a vascular surgeon for any of these problems we've identified.
1: Well, I want to tell you, it's really a pleasure to be here. I have really enjoyed this and have uh, and, and always enjoyed uh, our friendship and uh, collegial interactions and so yeah. forth. So I just had a ball. I really, I, I've enjoyed it. Thank Been you so much for coming, John. Absolutely. Thank day. you, Gil. Thank you. McFadden. Yes, sir.